welcome to Language Chats. This is a podcast for language lovers in Australia and beyond where we share our experiences of language learning with you, as well as the stories of other Australians and a few international guests who love learning, working with and communicating using other languages. I'm Penny. And I'm Beck, and we'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording today, the Wadawurrung people and the Wurundjeri people, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. And today we have a guest with us who's actually an old friend of Penny's, isn't he, uh, Penny? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's Tom Shug. Now, Tom, you are the founder of Meg Languages. Could you tell us, well, firstly, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about what you do? Sure thing. Thank you very much, Beck. Um, yes, my name is Tom Shug. I, I founded a company called Meg Languages just over a decade ago. And i um, I suppose at a high level, we focus on creating global citizens. Um, And I guess a a key strand of that is providing language instruction um, all across Australia and certainly other parts of the world as well. Um, Our model is a bit different in that our teaching team are based in country. So we only teach Mandarin and Spanish, but our Mandarin teaching team is based in China. And our Spanish-speaking team is based in Colombia, and we broadcast our teachers into the classrooms, same times each week, and and support schools with uh, live delivery of of language lessons in a really authentic environment and try and get students really excited about languages. It's such an awesome concept. And, you know, I've been following, you know, your business for for years now from from the ground up and even in its, you know, pre-Meg languages form as well. How... Where did language kind of come to you in your life? Like, were you into language learning as a kid, or how did your love of language kind of come about? Yeah, the, my love of languages stemmed very directly from a trip, a school trip to China that took place in year nine. Um, we were very fortunate, it was like mandatory as far as every student would go to China in year nine for what was a, a pretty innovative program back in. 1999. And China was a really interesting place and obviously continues to be an interesting place. But um, sadly, my journey with languages prior to that, outside of the compulsory bounds of needing to learn something in year seven and eight, um, I dropped it. I hated it. I hated languages. Um, they just There was no context to why I was learning. Um, I learned German and, and, and Mandarin and to be frank, I couldn't get excited about both um, until, of course, I went to China uh, at the later stages of year nine and I spent five weeks over there and just became absolutely mesmerized by what I saw in the streets and what sort of meager attempts I made to communicate and just the satisfaction that came in in having those engagements and being understood um, was something that really lent me a huge amount of motivation and um, inspiration, I suppose. And um, bad news for me, I'd already put my preferences in for the following year, so I couldn't actually jump back into uh, VCE or um, explore languages formally after that. But it definitely planted the seed um, to the extent that when I uh, when I got to university, um, I decided that I really wanted to have a have a crack at at languages. And those early impressions of China kind of really fueled that fire, and um, thankfully uh, opened the doors for many more opportunities to go there. To, to study as well. Fantastic. What a cool what a cool story of how an experience overseas can really ignite an interest in 
language. I think that's, you know, something that we have often talked about is that as Australians, um, it is not always easy to travel. Um, and I think it's still very much considered to be a, a real privilege when you can travel internationally, especially as a young person. Um, but the way that that can really open up, I suppose, your mind to to an interest in other in other cultures and, of course, other languages too, you definitely have benefited from that, hey, Tom? Absolutely, Beck, and and I think in essence that that was sort of the inspiration for for Meg Languages was sort of forged in in that early stage inspiration that I felt as a year nine, where I sort of deduced that what made this meaningful for me and and what got me excited about communicating in China was the fact that I was using what little I had and I was being understood by a, a culture and a language that was so foreign initially to my own. And with that just came an immense sense of satisfaction and certainly that desire to want to learn more and want to uh, explore more and go deeper into it. So the very essence of of Meg Languages when we started was um, let's provide students with an opportunity to talk to a native speaker because it's so vastly different to talking to someone within the confines of the four walls of your classroom. And there's technology um, as it exists now and as it did when we started the business is it lends itself to the most simple things where our teachers in China can take the webcam and they can direct it outside the window and all of a sudden the students are looking at snow falling on the, the dense skyline of Beijing and you can imagine what that means to, to students be they primary or secondary to just go hold on a second there's a big wide world out there and you know I can interact with it um, if I've got the right tools so that was very much, I think, what got us excited about starting Meg Languages as well and a lot of parallels to that initial experience I had as a, as a young Aussie. For sure. I can, I can I get excited just when you were talking about it because it's just like, yeah, this is what it's all about. You want learning to be that kind of bring real life into the classroom and it's really hard to do it unless you have these kind of innovative ways to do it and technology is so great. I mean, we could do it pre-technology, but it just it – just, makes it so much easier. <laughs> no, and to Beck's point, it's not always practical to, to jump on a plane and, and get over there, right? And um, if this can be sort of a, an on-ramp to uh, inspiring students to one day want to get on a plane and go over there, then I think that in itself can be, can be really successful as well. So 100%. back a little bit. So post high school, you went to uni. And yes. Did you, were you studying Chinese? Did you get to go to China for any kind of semester exchange, anything anything like that? I, I did. I did. So I was doing an arts degree, which, um, uh, yes, scoff arts degree. Um, hey, no, I'm one of no, those. No, yeah. <laughs> They're everywhere. They walk among us. Um, but um, I, I kind of went in with the rationale that um, I, I double major. I did a major in film and I did a major in Chinese. And I thought, I'm just going to learn a whole bunch of weird and wacky stuff and, and have fun in the process, but I'm going to leave with like hopefully a reasonable grasp of Chinese because I'm interested in that and um, that was sort of like my practical rationale for my practical brain and kind of allowed me just to have carte blanche to go down the rabbit hole of all kinds of weird, perhaps non-career contributing um, subjects. Um, so the Chinese pursuit was was very genuine and Monash had some great avenues to um, get over to China. I, I spent a stint um, in Shanghai uh, where I shared a room for months with our mutual friend, Jack Penny, um, and forged some great friendships that way. And I ended up um, having the opportunity to go and study in Taiwan, uh, again, like courtesy of Monash um, or facilitated by Monash rather. And um, yeah, spent a year living in Taipei and just 
yeah, it was the most amazing experience at, at, at 21 or, or whatever I was at the time and um, and really allowed me to ratchet up my, my Chinese. So um, with that in mind, it was sort of once I did finish my degree, um, it was just prior to the uh, 08 Olympics in Beijing. So there was a lot of sort of momentum and interest um, from Australian-based foreign companies heading over to China. And I was able to kind of ride that wave over there with people who wanted to get over there in advance of the Olympics, just thinking, hey, China's about to stand up on their own two feet and, you know, emit a really loud roar. Um, how can we get amongst it? So I was able to kind of get over there doing um, some event management type roles, nothing I knew anything about or had any background in, but hey, I had boots on the ground and um, I was there because I spoke a bit of Chinese, a terrible amount of Chinese in retrospect, but um, enough to at least, uh, you know, get over there and get started. Amazing. How cool. Um, so in, in all of that, and now you having spoken a little bit more about your experience kind of coming out of university, at what point did Meg Languages then, or um, I suppose maybe its earliest form, when did that idea come to you? How did, how did you decide that this could be a really cool way to bring languages into the classroom? Yeah, I'd been over in Beijing um, maybe about six or seven years, um, and I'd long wanted to start a business. Um, I was working at the uh, at the embassy at that that particular point in time, and I came back to Australia over Christmas for those couple of weeks um, uh, of the year, and caught up with who is now my business partner, uh, an old mate, a dear friend from primary school, uh, Sam, and we were both at that kind of stage where we're like, all right, we've got a you know we've got a couple of years of real life job experience, you know, that we could at least find our way back into the workforce if we need to, but maybe it's time to to develop an idea and, and have a bit of a crack. And um, we threw a lot of things around and then um, it, it was probably just through a lot of throwing a lot of bad ideas up against the wall that we got excited about this idea of what if you could have an affordable way to talk to a real Chinese speaker on the ground in China and I'd struggled like paying big money for language exchanges in in Melbourne before or traveling into the city to have a lesson at the Confucius Institute or whatever it was but it was all stuff that involved money and time and we thought hey there's this new whiz-bang technology called Skype maybe we could um maybe we can leverage it um and that was that then formed what we called my Chinese tutor um and then my Chinese tutor ended up evolving to my Chinese teacher because we realized that after not making any money and not finding enough customers, we thought it's just way too hard to find one-on-one students. Um, so we sort of pivoted towards schools, thinking, well, schools are uh, struggling to find language teachers. Maybe we're able to help bridge that gap. Um, and then we started offering another language. So we became My Education Group. And then after a while, we thought that's too many words, too many syllables. And we ended up becoming Meg. So um, it's an unusual name. We recognize that, but it comes from a uh, from an interesting origin and through various permutations, I suppose, over the years. It was actually going to be one of my questions. Yeah, fair. fair. You've answered it already. So, we so do get that. asked it a lot. You know, we often, uh, a lot of our staff get called Meg at various stages as well. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we've got about 10 Meg on staff at the moment. Um <laughs> But um, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. A few Megans. But um, yeah, I think it's something that we'll. I think it's something we've grown into, and you know, we'll be able to kind of make it our own in time as well. Anyway, or that's the intention. It's so funny that you say, like, you know, this new technology Skype. Like, I'm trying to think back to to a time when we didn't have 
video, this sort of video conferencing way of being able to, to, to work and do school and do education and do business like it's, it's so funny because now it just feels so second nature especially post covid so like you know sort of your post 2020 2021 the the fact that even at the 10 years ago about 2012 2013 skype was so novel so um, novel and, and yeah that it could be that it could be part of a classroom even and and Beck, I'll tell you how novel it was because I remember our very very first demo ever at the school level, and we were out at Yay Primary School in regional Victoria, um, beautiful little town of, of Yay. If you get the chance, on your way to Mount Buller, probably. And um, we were sitting at the back of the classroom, and they wanted to see what we what we had, what we could do, and um, we didn't know what we had or or what we could do at the time. You know, we were writing the lesson plan in the car on the way up there, and we had one team member in Beijing at the time who was working out of my spare bedroom um, at the Beijing apartment, had a pull-up banner behind her, and um, we ended up starting this demo thinking, look, Skype, don't worry, it's really reliable, we'll be okay, but this was the days of things being really glitchy, and we forget now because we're so used to, like, having high-definition you know, high fidelity, like really nice, stable connections. But that was not the case. And I reckon my blood pressure um, really, really suffered as a result of these early stage demos sitting up the back of the classroom, just trying to navigate through these pauses, um, which just seemed to go on for an eternity. But um, credit to Deb George at Yay. Um, she stuck with us and stuck it out. And thankfully, the technology's caught up a little bit, you know, from from the earlier vision. It must be nice having those kind of early day interactions and examples of where the business was you know 10, Absolutely. 10 years ago and to look back and also to have you know yay primary is you know a client still as well how what you know <laughs> kudos to you guys for for making that happen um when your business was taking off you're based in australia but I know that Meg is also a global company and that you guys have operations in the US as well. When did that all kick off and, and how did you make that decision to go, okay, we just want to get bigger? <laughs> yeah, um, it, it started out going, well, we've got Australia and China, um, as you're both aware, have a great, like very favourable time zone, right? We're just, we're never more than sort of three hours separate um, and in the case of Western Australia, we're, we're pretty much on on Beijing time most of the time. So there were just some, and our sales and marketing started here in Australia. So there are all kinds of practical logistical reasons as to why Australia was where we um, started to build our footprint. And as we sort of initially were just in Victoria and we're like, our, our, our lens was sort of focused on Victoria. And then we thought, oh, hold on, there's other states in, you know, other states in Australia too. Maybe we should pull our finger out and, and go and see if we can sell some classrooms to Queensland. And um, at some point, we started broadening the, the shifts that we required teachers because Australia in itself has like five different time zones at any one time. So you really need to um, get... Uh, to, in order to meet those logistical challenges, we realised, hold on, there's actually some overlap with New Zealand. Oh, do you know that it's actually in the UK? Um, we cover at the moment 9am to 11am and New York Eastern Standard Time. Do you know that we also cover 9am to 11am? So it, it started, it was almost like a, an afterthought would, would be an exaggeration, but it was just more a byproduct of um, our growing operations in Australia. And we thought, well, there's applications here. Let's see if these problems that we're finding in Australia are as widespread globally. And look, probably to our surprise, um, they absolutely are. 
uh, we teach that we have a, a largest footprint uh, of our company globally is in New York. We teach all throughout the Bronx, Brooklyn, um, Mandarin and Spanish. And we sort of had this preconception that there would be a, a surplus of, in particular, Spanish in the US, um, Spanish teachers. And that certainly wasn't the case. And in fact, S- Spanish was sort of born out of US principals hearing about a Mandarin offering and going, sounds great, but do you have Spanish? And I think when enough people sort of ask you, do you have something? Um, and you think you could perhaps create it, um, that's when we got excited enough about the Spanish offering and, and ended up setting up an operation in Colombia as well. So uh, the short answer, Penny, is probably organically um, is how those territories came to be. But um, the US is certainly um, very close to becoming the sort of largest um, market of the business for some fairly predictable reasons. Um, but um, the issues that we're faced with in Australia are felt worldwide. Uh, and when I say worldwide, I'm obviously talking about sort of um, developed Western nations where we prioritise languages. We all know they're important, but there's just this complete lack of access to language teachers um, through the conventional means. It's funny because I actually remember, Penny, you and I talking about like sort of I think in the early part of maybe 2020 when when everyone was sort of realising that maybe this period of like working from home and, and you know, this meeting with people remotely was maybe going to last for a little bit longer. And I remember <laughs> us having a discussion about like how good would it be for like regional schools that struggle to have teachers? Wouldn't it be cool if there was this really helped them? Um, and obviously I didn't know anything about Meg languages at the time. Sure, but sure. I, I love that it may, what you are doing is making teaching so – is making language – education, um, live language education as well, so accessible. I think that in a place like, obviously, this is a struggle that you have all around the world, but in a place like Australia, we really see the, the the difference that remoteness can have on availability of all kinds of services. Um, like I, I sort of remember as a kid, I, I don't even know if this service still exists, but um, there used to be, and for those who are outside of Australia listening, um, <laughs> for very remote areas, they used to have kind of school by radio. Ah, um, yes. And yes. it was a, a way that, yeah, kids who lived on very remote um, sort of maybe stations out kind of in the outback, or at least that's how, that's how you thought about it. But, of course, just other places that happened to be regional and in probably several hours from a, a large metropolitan city probably needed this too sometimes. Um, but at that time, it seemed like the most like way out kind of idea that like you couldn't have a teacher close enough, so you had to do it by radio. Really, like these days, doing video calls and and having that ability to see somebody face to face makes such a difference when you are interacting with them, um, especially under kind of educational purposes, I think, because you really need to be able to to make a connection with someone. And when with languages, I know that we've often found as adults doing online classes, being able to see the motion of someone's face, the way that they express themselves and how they use their, um, like their physical, <laughs> the physical Yeah, the, the way their mouth moves. Yeah. sounds like, you know, it becomes really, really important when you're trying to replicate um, another, you know, the sounds of another language. Um, and I feel like, yeah, Meg languages just sounds like such a cool concept, um, such a, and such a great way to ensure that there is more availability, um, for, for people to, for for younger people and probably some older people as well, but I don't know, definitely with your younger, your kids at school, um, who otherwise might not have been able to even dip their, dip their toes into learning another language. 
Beck, I think, and what you're talking about is is equity, right? We're talking about like equitable right. access to to a language program, which which is is the platform on which you know our sort of core ethos is sort of built. And um, we teach out. I, I mentioned New York, right? Where we teach these bustling metropolitan schools. In New York is not an under resourced part of the world, like by and large. Um, of course, there are pockets that struggle with access to different kinds of resources, but it is every sense of a metropolis, a booming metropolis. Now, we teach out in the Kimberley, and the Kimberley is, if, if the booming metropolis is on one end of the scale, and Kimberley is definitely on the other end. So, um, I think the fact that both these groups can have the same meaningful experience and have the same access to uh, quality languages education. It's just, it's not something that that exists within the traditional model. And um, it's something that we get a lot of inspiration from and our team as well. You know, we're a really mission-driven business and our team have a, a great sense of purpose when it comes to providing equitable access to, to language programs the world over. And um, yeah, we're really pleased to be able to do that and, and have a lot of examples of that, you know, within our footprint at the moment. Tom, I was going to ask you, because I know that, you know, qualifications for teachers is a, is a barrier for you know schools for kids picking up languages and having access to, to second language learning was that was that a primary kind of driver for you you know in the in the forefront of your mind when you were starting make languages is there's all these amazing qualified educators out there who speak a second language but in some ways there's a barrier for them to get in front of a classroom because they don't have a qualification that's recognised in the country that they want to teach in. Is that something or are we delving into a, a minefield of <laughs> policy? And <laughs> no, no, I, no, there's definitely, there's a, there's a heap of relevance to, to, to what you're um, suggesting there, Penn. Look, what became apparent really early on, and, and again, we didn't stumble into schools by accident, but our, our, initial, our initial offering was one-on-one lessons. If you're a young professional or if you're a university student, you want some extra contact hours with a native speaker in China, come onto our amazing My Chinese Tutor platform and, you know, you can have cost-effective lessons and all the rest of it. And then I, I sort of mentioned that just wasn't working. And then we started to pivot towards schools. And it wasn't long within looking at the, the school ecosystem um, before we realised that there just simply aren't enough language teachers. Like, there, there's some excellent language teachers out there um, and there are just simply not enough and the, the problem is so systemic in that you look at the amount of students that are graduating from VCE with a language and those numbers are pathetic like they are just they're dwindling down to almost insignificance and now you've got the university where I studied at Monash I don't even think they have a Chinese department anymore like I think it's just gone um, so how are we going to have more language teachers if nobody's graduating from university with aspirations to become a language teacher? And that's the, that's the state now, that's the present state. And it's even more dire than what it was probably 10 years ago when we were just learning about the space. So um, the fact that a lot of schools, particularly in Victoria, I mean, it's you're mandated to have a language. It's something that it's a required part of the curriculum. You absolutely have to do it. And when you've got a scenario where something's a required part of the curriculum, but there aren't enough language teachers, 
you unfortunately, through policy, create these opportunities for really meaningless box ticking exercises. And uh, you, you can imagine how that's, it manifests in various cultural programs. And we had someone visit and they taught us about this and taught us about that, but nothing that would actually represent um, a language program with, with any sort of integrity. So it, I guess it's coming into that space and mandates were being rolled out across Victoria and, and uh, the language programs were being mandated in other states and everyone's scratching their head going, awesome idea. Yeah, we reckon languages are important too, but what do you want us to do about it? Um, so still now we, we find, particularly in the regional schools piece, that um, those that are enjoying our program, they're just so excited about plugging it into their network because they're able to have a solution to what's long been considered uh, a pretty difficult problem to solve. And uh, unfortunately, the nature of having a really good language teacher at some stage, they'll leave and um, they'll, they, might, they might take a leave of absence, they might move towns and they'll take the whole language with them. And then it, comes, it becomes a question of, well, what's available next? And it's all too common for a school to be learning German only to be switching to uh, Cantonese and or Swahili or whatever happens to be locally available. So uh, I guess separate to just solving the supply issue, we like to be able to approach a school and say, if you use our program, you will never have to have a headache around language programs ever again. We're giving you a sustainable solution. And, and if you want your students to have value in a language, you want them to be able to learn it year in, year out as well and take them on those sort of consistent learning pathways. Can I ask a question um, kind of about the actual, I guess the actual like running of a class when you've got a teacher who isn't physically present in the classroom? Um, again, as people who have done one-on-one classes, because like as an adult, I've done plenty of classes like that. So I know that the, you know, video sort of person-to-person thing absolutely works. Um how do you find, or at least what, what are your experiences and your teacher's experiences and your client's experiences of having a teacher who is fully remote, um, managing a classroom of potentially, I'm guessing like anywhere between like a handful to like maybe 20 kids or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, typically me. about 25. Yeah. You'd yeah, normally yeah. have like 25 in a classroom. Um, yeah. It's a really good, it's a really good question. And it's something that we've refined over time um, as we've gotten better at it. But if I was to kind of uh, take you through the typical setup, let's just take any uh, primary school, a Victorian primary school, for instance, and we might be teaching 10 classrooms across the school, which is all of their classes. There might be 25 students in each class. Now, um, the lessons are supported by the classroom teacher. So uh, Mrs. Smith, who runs that class, she's present throughout all of the Chinese classes in this instance. Now, there is zero expectation on Mrs. Smith to know any Chinese. You can imagine like, um, you know, people would be... Um, rolling their eyes or running for the hills if they were told they needed to actually provide direction around the, the the program. But I suppose the role is more of a strictly behavioral management type role. And then we'll have a, a large screen in, I mean, every school almost worldwide has access to some form of projection. Um, and then we'll beam in one of our teachers and they'll be larger than life. So that, that in itself gives it a nice visual spectacle. Um, we make sure that the audio quality is, is really robust as well. So there's a lot of audio presence. Um, and then as you would as you would know through um, your own professional experience and even what you guys are doing in regards to the podcast, like there is to convey an engaging presence online, 
I think it probably doesn't hurt to kind of ratchet things up a little bit as well too, right? Like we've got to recognize that there could still be the tyranny of distance between any two points. So we, I mean, our team is trained and sort of handpicked to be able to deliver deliver really engaging lessons. And um, a, a big component of that is just about having the capacity to get students excited about learning a language and having that sort of robust personality that um, we think will excite students about languages as well. So it's something that is a very deliberate part of, I guess, our methodology as well. I'm imagining like, you know, music and dance and like, I don't know. Oh, you betcha. <laughs> yeah, no, the whole the whole kid and caboodle, yeah. And what what is really nice, like recognising that our model is unconventional as far as the teachers are, are in country, but it's also unconventional in that we do have a generalist classroom teacher participating as well. Now, you'd imagine that that, or you might think that could go a number of different ways. Like you will get classroom teachers, um, as we all know, they're immensely busy, they're immensely stressed out. Um, and they're, they're juggling, you know, a, a lot of things at any one time. So um, initially, they might hear you're going to be involved with supporting the Chinese language program, um, or it's going to be happening in your classroom every week, and you're going to be present. And sometimes they're just a little bit intimidated by that prospect. But what actually happens is they end up going along the learning journey with the students as well. And in a pre-COVID era, we were actually in this wonderful position to take cohorts of generalist classroom teachers over to China because they just so enjoyed what they'd been learning and they wanted to basically do advanced language studies. They wanted to do an immersion type trip. Um, so it had kind of ignited something in the classroom teachers that, you know, they weren't expecting to encounter, you know, uh, along their professional kind of um, trajectory. And um, it's a really nice thing because they then go to China and then that trickles back into the school when they're able to share their photos um, and, and talk about what they learned. And Ultimately, when you think about a school that might adopt our program, you might have 20-something classroom teachers that are going along the journey with the students as well. So you're out there in, re in lunchtime and recess, you might hear some Chinese, use some Chinese. If you're doing roll call, you might hear Chinese. If it's somebody's birthday, then you might decide to sing Shung Ru Kui Le, um, just as it's just a really easy inclusion um, to make sure we get these kind of cross-curriculum learning opportunities as well. And I would argue that, that that also doesn't occur in a traditional language model. You typically have a teacher of the language domain who comes to school. They are the brains trust. It kind of lives and dies the knowledge within their head, and then they get in their car and they drive home. So uh, it does allow things to become a bit more embedded. And we've just got so many great examples of that as we've worked with schools throughout the years. Oh, good on you, Tom. <laughs> um, one of my questions I wanted to ask you too was, you know, is there any kind of, you know, future on the horizon language plans for you personally or for Make Language Broader that, you know, are, is exciting you at the moment that you're, <laughs> that you're able yes. to or willing to share? <laughs> yes, both able and willing and excited, all three. Um we are, we are fascinated um, and, and we're, we're really putting um, a, a huge amount of effort and energy and, and resources um, into developing games. I'm talking about computer-based games, digital games that can also interact with languages and help promote this learning experience. And I'll give you an example. It's something that's like hot off the press. It's something that we're just about to, to start to push out uh, in Victoria initially, but we're calling it a culture quest. And it is effectively a, a virtual reality map of the Great Wall of China. 
and students go onto the map and I'm talking about they create their own avatar and they come on as a whole classroom. So you've got 25 little bodies jumping up and down inside this map. And in the instance of a culture quest, they need to locate all 12 animals of the Chinese zodiac. And each encounter with an animal requires them solving a particular puzzle so they can complete this overall objective. They've got to do it within an hour. And as a precursor to this particular event, there's an augmented reality uh, experience. And then there's some 360 videos at the end of it. We're wrapping the whole thing up in uh, as, a, as a culture quest. And essentially, I guess at the core of what we do, we want to create a more engaging environment for learning languages. And we just find that technology and certainly games in this instance are an excellent way to do it. And in our sort of uh, long, long-term predictions, we thought, wouldn't it be amazing if someone through VR or um, some form of augmented reality could go into a marketplace in China and practice buying a fish and buying some watermelon, buying some fruit. And we always thought that that was just, that's something we'll do in the future. That's something that we'll do way down the track. It's going to be too expensive. The technology is not there yet. Um, and it was only in the past 12 months that we kind of looked at it with fresh eyes and thought, you know what, there's actually a lot that we can do right now. Um within with what's available technology wise and we've just been running some pilots with a few schools and i just think it's going to be huge i think it's going to be so exciting and i think we're really going to kind of hitch our cart uh to this particular horse and explore this mixed reality uh as it relates to language and culture and again just immerse students in an environment that they want to be in that they want to learn in with language and culture at the forefront i mean i just think I think that'd just be a wonderful resource that I would have loved to have benefit from when you know when I was at that age as well. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. And I'll show it to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll show it. Do I'll it. show it to both of do you guys. It. Um, post pod. Um, yeah, that would be so cool. It's it sounds like a. Oh, I kind of want to play. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm like that is yeah. the kind of game I definitely wanted to play at school. Um, that sounds awesome. Another burning question from me though. Mm. Um, I am curious about whether you have plans to expand your language offering. Is yes. That something that's on the radar. Um, it 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 is. the The short answer is yes. Um, it is. At the moment, I don't think because. Our model requires setting up an operational base somewhere else in the world. So it's quite extensive. We, we have a large operation in China. Uh, we have 70 staff um, in China and we have a similar sized operation in Colombia. So for us, it would be a matter of really identifying what we felt would be the best sort of market opportunity. Um, but then I also think that as our digital technologies are starting to develop and our digital capabilities are starting to develop, I think we'll end up building a learning platform that is that we could effectively build curriculums for across a whole host of languages um, and be able to provide this virtual reality plugin as well. Uh, and I think that will really lend itself in the medium term to us being able to build curriculums at a rate that we probably haven't been able to in the past. So um, I think yes, but I think they'll probably take on a slightly different form to our current model. Mm-hmm. Okay. Exciting. Do you uh, have well, any recommendations? We are we playing favourites with other languages? Are we, are we any personal favourites that we should be considering? 
Well, no, to be honest, I'm just, I'm, I'm just so curious. Like I I would love to see, I I would love to see this grow. I mean, I love the idea. I think, I think it's so cool what you're doing. So congratulations. Cause well done. Oh, sure. Yeah. Thank you. It's we're not there yet, but yeah, we're we're definitely having a crack. I just feel like it's so much potential. It's like choosing a favorite child. Like how do you choose the next one? No, I know. know, It'd be bad for your brand in particular, both of you too, if you were to start playing favorites. Um, I'll throw out though, I think Indonesian, you know, in Australia, I think our partnership with Indonesia is really important and obviously proximity and it'd be nice to just move beyond the Bali bubble and uh, really develop a bit more sort of cultural awareness and, and language there. So Indonesian's always fascinated us at, at that sort of level, but um, yeah, just, awesome. just not, yeah. just not too sure. Yeah. yeah. Japanese would be cool. <laughs> Japanese would be cool as well. Absolutely. Any excuse to go to Japan, right? Oh, thanks heaps, Tom. We've really appreciated you giving up your time to come and chat with us on Language Chats. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and love both of your work. Keep it up. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. So we'll make sure that – actually, Tom, before you do go, we should ask um, where can people find out more about Meg Languages um, and maybe about you if they would like to – yeah, you know, we'll connect. Get get all the details. Yeah, great. Uh, look, come to our website meglanguages.com. Um, and uh, if you'd like to reach out to me personally, LinkedIn is is probably the best avenue to do so. And um, yeah, we're looking forward to to sharing some of the the coming attractions. And yeah, hope to hope to have a whole suite of new products just around the corner. Okay, excellent. Well, we'll make sure that there are links um, in the show notes for all of you listening out there um, so that you can find those easily. Um, But again, thank you, um, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Um, If you would like to listen back to more episodes of Language Chats, then you can find us wherever obviously you're listening to podcasts now, but also we have a website. It's uh, languagelovers.com.au. You can find all of our past episodes there and a little bit of information about us. Um, And also we're on in the usual social media places too. You can find us on Instagram, language lovers.au um, and also on Facebook language lovers au which is also where our group our community lives um, it's language lovers au community so you can find us there and join in the conversation if you would like to interact with some other like-minded language lovers around Australia and abroad and don't forget if you've loved this episode um, and you know a friend or family member who might also love it please don't forget you can share the episode with them and we also love it when you leave us a review and rating and we read them all and we so appreciate your time so thank you once again and we will catch you in another format see you next time thanks Tom thanks Tom cheers bye